Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Um, better than any other verse, uh, this verse encapsulates the Bible's teachings on politics, all right? Better than any other verse, Jesus' wisdom in this verse encapsulates the Christian scripture's teaching on what a Christian's posture should be towards the political systems that we engage in. Now, um, as we approach this topic, most of you fall into one of two categories. No, not left and right. But rather you fall into one of these two categories. Politics is something that either feels extremely far off and kind of distant from your life and something that you don't really care about in any shape, form, or fashion, or politics is something that you care about deeply. Politics is something that you you believe is extraordinarily important. You probably fall into one of those two categories. And before we begin looking at our text tonight, I want to address each of those groups. All right? Now, if you're someone who doesn't care about politics, Maybe you think it's your grandparents or your aunt or your uncle uh, or your parents or your classmate who sits in front of the TV all day watching news media. Maybe you think they're the one who has a problem with politics, but this isn't for you. And so you're ready to go ahead and check out of this lesson. I encourage you, don't. Because no matter what, whether you think politics matters or not, you live in a world that is ravaged by political divide. You inhabit a culture that has been completely torn apart by partisan, partisanship, all right? And as you progress in life, as you progress in life, our culture is going to try to push you into one of the two political camps that we have and make it the defining trait of your existence, right? As you live out your life in our culture, one of the things that's going to happen is that politics is going to try to become an idol in your life. It's going to be try to become the thing through which you process and interpret and articulate the rest of your experience in this world. All right? And if you are engaged on social media or you watch news at all, you know that to be true. And so even if you don't think you struggle with politics, it's imperative that we talk about how politics tempt us away from the cross-shaped lives that we're called to as Christians that Mark specifically talks about. And it's important that we talk about how the Christian life, the cross-shaped life, speaks into our extremely divided world. All right, so if you don't care about politics, don't check out. This matters to you, too. For those of you who are deeply invested into politics, for those of you who think to yourselves, man, the stakes are just so high because of our political climate, And by the way, I I think the stakes are high. But for those of you who would be tempted because of this belief that politics matters so much and the stakes are so high, for those of you who would be tempted to say, yeah, I hear what Jesus is saying, but in our day and age, we need to do this, not that. If Jesus just knew what was at stake, he would agree with me, not with what he's saying in that context. If you would be tempted to twist Jesus' words here, because you believe the stakes are very high, 
I just want to point out two things. The first is this. On what type of cross was Jesus crucified just a couple days after saying those words in Mark chapter 12, verse 17? What type of cross? Whose empire's cross was he, was he hung on? Caesar's. Caesar's, a Roman cross. For those of you who've been a part of this journey through the Gospel of Mark, what was the political landscape of the original readers of the Gospel of Mark? Come on, y'all know this. They hated Rome. Why did they hate Rome? Rome hated them. All right, the Emperor Nero has just has just set off a wave of persecution against Christians. He just crucified Peter upside down. Where St. Peter's Basilica now stands in Rome. The stakes don't get higher than the context of Jesus' words here. All right? You may think that the stakes are higher in our context. They don't get higher than Jesus about to get crucified. Okay? In other words, Jesus' words here are inescapable. It is inexcusable for us who bear the name of Christ to reject them or twist them or ignore them. Render unto Caesar, who is going to crucify me, what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And so with that said, let's begin uh, by looking at our text for tonight. And then we're going to talk about how that exposes, I think, our cultural political temptations um, and then we'll close out by trying to begin to chart a course forward uh, for a Christian posture towards politics, which, by the way, I think is going to be quite a feat. So, Mark chapter 12, verse 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but, they, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? You know, just to make it clear, should we or shouldn't we? Let me point out just a couple things uh, about what's going on here. It's pretty self-explanatory, but what's crazy about this part uh, of Scripture is the groups that are joining together to try to trap Jesus. All right, Pharisees and Herodians. If, if you were one of Mark's original readers and you heard that the Pharisees and Herodians got together to try to trap Jesus, your mind would just be blown. These are not groups that talk with each other, all right? This is like, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters and, and the Trump supporters, like, gathering together to, like, go and try to trap Jesus, all right? Um, so... Let me talk a little bit about the, the Jewish political landscape, all right? So Jews are oppressed by Rome, and there were five different camps, all right? One is the Essenes, and they don't really matter to this conversation. What they did was they just totally withdrew, all right? John the Baptist was an Essene. He totally withdrew, all right? But other than the Essenes, there were four political camps, and we can split them into two categories, all right? Those who equated God with politics and those who replaced God with politics. Those who equated God with politics and those who replaced God with politics. The zealots and the Pharisees are the group of people that equated God and politics. These were the people who wanted the classic 
Jewish Messiah, the one who would come in and overthrow the Roman oppressors and restore Israel as a nation state as in the days of David and Solomon. They had conflated or equated or confused God's agenda and their own agenda. In other words, for so long and for so often, they had slapped God's name onto their political agenda that they forgot the difference between the two things. They became one. Now, on the other hand, was the group of people who would replace God with politics. They would stop looking to Yahweh for, as their source of salvation and their source of hope and their source of sustenance, and they would begin to look to Rome to provide for them instead of Yahweh. These groups are the Herodians and the Sadducees. In other words, instead of looking to Yahweh for their substance and salvation, right, they looked to Rome. The Herodians were supporters of the puppet government uh, that Rome set up in Israel uh, that su succeeded through the Herodian line. So if you like know the nativity stories, right, and King Herod, like it's those people, the, the people that supported him, all right, he was set up by Rome. And so the Herodians trusted to Rome because they were supporting Herod or the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the priestly caste who benefited from the Roman regime. These people were like wealthy as all get out, right? They're, they're like the one percenters. And um, so they didn't want anything to change, right? Like the Roman oppression did not bother them too much, right? Like they were doing just fine and they were helping oppress people alongside of Rome. And so they wanted to keep the status quo and they wanted to keep Rome in power. All right, so what we see here coming and approaching Jesus is a, two groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, who are in two completely polar political camps. And they're coming together to try to trap Jesus because he doesn't map onto either side's politics, does he? And because of that, what does he become? Public enemy number one, right? The second thing I want to point out is just that. Notice how they flatter Jesus, right? They're not flattering him so that they can kind of butter Jesus up. They're flattering Jesus for the crowds. They're trying to create a scene. They're trying to create a spectacle. They're trying to get a group of people to gather around Jesus so that when he answers the question that he, they're about to ask him, everyone will hear it, and therefore he will get in trouble. All right, their question is this. Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Now, that may seem like totally arbitrary to us. That may not matter to us. I mean, you know, like, we can't really get away with not paying the taxes. Like, you know, what is it? De the only two things are certain life or death and taxes. Certainly feels that way with April 15th coming up. <sighs> We're so lucky. Most of you still have parents to your taxes. The imperial tax was imposed by Rome in AD 6, all right? So when Jesus is about, like, 6, right? When Judea became a Roman province. And so by the time, um, and so by the time of Jesus... Uh, if you were to pay the tax or not, was actually one of the most like highly debated political topics of the day and age for the past 25 years. I mean, think about the most like hotly debated political topic over the past 25 years. Like that's the question they're asking Jesus. Okay. There had even been a Jewish revolt during this period in which a man named Judas the Galilean uh, used the slogan "Down with taxes to Caesar." That sounds like something from the like Revolutionary War. Um, it just makes me, uh, makes me giggle. Uh, and he's, he's used this slogan to rally support from the Jewish peasants. And here's the thing. That, uh, that revolution was absolutely and totally and brutally crushed by Rome. All right? It lasted not very long. All right? So 
Do you see the dilemma that they're trying to work Jesus into? He can either answer, yes, pay the tax to Caesar, and get in trouble with all of his supporters, the Jewish peasants who he's healed and who he's cast out demons from and who he's touched even when they were deemed to be untouchable. He could upset them, or he could say, no, don't pay the imperial tax. And what would happen next? The Herodians would go to the Romans who would then crucify him. Just as in today, often questions that revolve around politics feel like a lose-lose situation, don't they? But Jesus transcends this false dichotomy. And he's going to do so in verse 17, but he has this fascinating setup. All right? So, I mean, they have him trapped. They've drawn attention to him. They've flattered him. They've gotten people to pay attention. And he has to ask, he has to answer this question that is totally unanswerable. And Jesus responds like this. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius. Now, some commentators are like, he wants them to recognize that they have Roman coins in their pocket. I think that's fascinating. He wants them to recognize, by the way, like, you know, you can ask me this question, but all of you, all of you have a Roman coin in your pocket, don't you? All of you have recognized that Rome has power, haven't you? Bring me denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Now what's going on here, all right? What's going on here? This is a denarius, okay? Whenever, um, so when Jesus was crucified, the Caesar of the day was named Tiberius Caesar. And he took over for someone who you're much more likely to know, Augustus Caesar, who took over for who? Julius Caesar. Good job, you'll pay attention in history. All right, so Julius Caesar consolidates the Roman Empire, right? And he begins it. And then he passes it down to his adopted son, Augustus, who then passes it down to his adopted son, Tiberius. Here's the question. Rome is a very expansive empire, right? I mean, it spread all the way from like Spain to Africa. So here's the question. How in the world did the rest of the empire know when a new Caesar was coming about? Coins. Whenever Julius Caesar, right, they don't have, right, they don't have, um, I mean, think about this, right? They don't have TV. They don't have news apps. They don't have the internet. They don't even like have like postage as we would conceive of it, right? So each, reign, uh, each new reign would begin with a campaign of, of statues built and coinage and printed that would all witness to the reality that there was a new Caesar and that that Caesar was a divine Lord, in order to justify themselves as the rightful ruler over the people. All right, that's what a denarius is supposed to do. It images to the rest of the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. What is written on this exact denarius, the exact kind of denarius that they would have handed Jesus, is Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. And after looking at the denarius and having this little conversation with them, Jesus responds with these famous words. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at his teaching. This coin has Caesar's face on it. Okay, fine. It's him. It's his. 
But what bears the image of God? What bears the image of God? Answer the question. What bears the image of God? We do. Fine. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. For us, get informed. Vote. Care about politics of our day. But only render your allegiance. Only wholly give yourself over to. Only put your faith and hope and trust in Yahweh. Don't expect your sustenance. Don't expect your salvation from Rome. Don't expect it from Washington, D.C. Expect it from God. In other words, Washington, D.C., no matter what party is in control, deserves your allegiance. Only the kingdom of God. Philippians 3, we are citizens of what? We are citizens of, anybody? Heaven. Tim Keller, uh, probably more than anybody, has thought through the cultural idols of our day in American culture. And he frames the problem this way. It is a settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. Ernest Becker wrote that in a society that has lost the reality of God, in other words, a secular society, all right? And by the way, we who live on a, on a secular state university town campus, or campus town, we are secular, all right? Whether you're Christian or not, you are secular, all right? Secularism is not just about campus. Secularism has worked its way into the very bowels of the church. Now, that's not a great thing, by the way. But in a secular society, many people will look to romantic love to give them fulfillment they once found in the religious experience. The philosopher Nietzsche said, however, uh, believe that it would be money that would replace God. But there's another candidate to fill that spiritual vacuum. In a secular society, it may not be romantic love, it may not be money that fills the void that God wants held, but rather it is politics. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and we turn our political activism into some sort of religion. Have you watched the news recently? How true is that? Have you looked at your social media feed recently? How true is that? Have you seen arguments? Uh, if, I don't know, some of you don't on Facebook. If you, if you watch the political arguments that happen on Facebook, how true is that? The stakes are so high, Ben. I want us to think about this for a second, right? If we think that someone who doesn't affiliate themselves with the same political party as us cannot be a faithful Christian, if we don't possess the civility to both openly and critically listen to an opposing view and have our own views openly and critically critiqued, if we reflexively hold the party line on every single issue, no matter what is said or done by that party, if we vehemently support a candidate without nuance, right, without being able to admit their imperfections and their faults along with their good qualities, by the way, do you know what that is? That's saying that they're God, for only God is perfect. 
We are more wrapped up in and stirred up by news coverage than we are engaging for the actual, the actual tangible, physical people who are hurt and lost and lonely in this world. If we think that a utopia is possible, if our side just got their way, if we let politics steal the joy that we have in Christ, if we think that God's hands tremble and he gets scared when the opposing party implements what we perceive to be as anti-Christian policies, when Psalm 2 says that Yahweh scoffs as the nations conspire against him, if we look to politics to heal our deepest wounds and give our life meaning, if our passion for politics is greater than our passion for the more than 7,000 people groups who are not reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have rendered unto Caesar what is rightfully God's. We have neglected Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 12, Verse 17. And so the question that I have is, what does all this expose about our culture's political temptations? This is oversimplified. This is oversimplified, but I think the two main mistakes that we as Christians make when engaging in politics is actually the same as the Herodians and the Pharisees. We often either equate God with politics, or we replace God with politics, respectively breaking the first and second commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. These are the first two commandments, all right? Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods beside me or before me. In other words, don't replace me with a false god, one who cannot deliver, deliver you from sin, one who cannot deliver you from the hands of Egypt, one who cannot provide for you, one who cannot give hope. Don't replace me with a false god. I am the one who delivered you. None of these other gods can, including politics. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Now what he's talking about here is not making an idol out of something else, but rather trying to conform God into something that we can understand. What's being prohibited here is equating God the creator into anything inside of his creation. Don't try to tame God. That's the second commandment. So let's start with that one, all right? Let's start with the second commandment. The temptation that I think, I'll say that, sorry. Man, I went, man, no, sorry, I'm struggling. The temptation, boo you, it's good to see you. The temptation that I think right-winged and conservative and Republican politics uh, is prone to make is to break the second commandment in which we equate God with politics. When uh, you hear people, this, this is the best way I know how to illustrate this, okay? When you hear people say, or, and someone asks you, you know, like, hey, what are your priorities? What is, like, one of the more common responses that is given in our country? It's three things, and you saw it on the screen. God, family, country. All right? 
This is one of the things that's often said, right? God is politics. God, family, country. You ask somebody your priorities, and, and someone will say, you ask somebody the priorities. It's likely, one of the answers that you'll get is God, family, country. Here's the thing. That's what is said. But what is often meant is this. God equals family equals country. We say this. We mean this. Here's the thing. It's totally fair to want that. Right? I mean, it would be really nice if God equals family equals country, right? If, if, because, like, if, if all of those things shared the same ethics, if all those things shared the same values, if all those things were just totally aligned, our lives would be so much easier, right? I mean, the world would function perfectly if God equals family equals politics. Right? But here's the thing. Christians are called to live as what? First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Exiles. We are called to be citizens of where? Heaven. Not any political system. God never equals family equals politics. I think there's two dangers when we fall into this trap. The first is um, a lack of distinction between God, the creator, and his creation. One way I, I know how to put this is there's no such thing, hear this, there's no such thing as plural priorities in the life of God. I mean, to rank God among others, even if he's number one, even if he's number one, is to degrade who God is. It is to degrade him and reject his position as the creator of all things. God is not one priority, even number one, amongst many others. But rather, he is the reality. He is the framework out of which all of our other priorities are derived, are conceived of. We can't just rank God number one. That doesn't make him different enough. That doesn't recognize that he is so holy and so other and so completely good that we cannot begin to comprehend him. God is not the number one priority in our list of priorities. He is the reality out of which the rest of our life is conceived of and our priorities are derived. Implicit inside of our Christian witness that Jesus is Lord is a drastic distinction between our God and our politics. Implicit in our witness, our Christian witness, that Jesus is Lord is a drastic distinction between God and politics. The second thing that is really dangerous when, when we live into to kind of this temptation is that it constantly puts us in a defensive position. Right? If we live into this, right, God equals family equals country, when my politics are attacked, who else is attacked? God. If I live into this, when my politics are attacked, so is God. And so we recoil, and we get defensive. One of my favorite quotes comes from uh, the philosopher Marilyn Robinson. She, she put it this way. She says, nothing true can be said of God out of a posture of defense. Let me think about that. Nothing true can be said of God out of a posture of defense. If God is who he claims to be, if he's the creator of you and me and the entire cosmos... Does he need our defense? 
Does he need us creatures defending him to other creatures? Do you hear all that degrades him? God existed before we ever did. He will exist after we die, and he will be the one who resurrects us in the end so that we can have new life. He doesn't need us defending him to other creatures. Have we tamed God into something? I mean, hear this. Particularly if you're someone who struggle, who, who, who is maybe struggles with this and maybe um, on, on the more right spectrum of politics. Have you tamed God into something that needs to be defended? By the way, I, I say this as someone who's made this mistake. Now that we've talked about the right, we can talk about the left. The temptation that I think left-wing and liberal and democratic politics is prone to fall into is that it replaces God with politics. It breaks the first commandment. I think the temptation here is that the left has replaced God on the throne of their lives, right? Placing their hope and trust in government for their sustenance and their salvation. And therefore their allegiance doesn't go to God. That's not where their trust is. That's not where their faith is. That's not, that's not where their hope is. But rather it's in politics. Uh, uh, there's a show called The West Wing. It's one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and it follows a Democratic uh, president uh, throughout his eight years in office. And, and it's really interesting the way they talk about politics in this show. They talk about it as a source of hope for the people, a place where nobody gets left behind, a beacon of light in a dark world. It's all very churchy religious language, isn't it? I also listen to, I listen to a lot of right-wing and left-wing um, political podcasts. And this is very true. Like, when you listen to kind of more left-wing podcasts, it's fascinating how they talk about politics. As, a, as this place of, of, of hope, as this place of, of, of salvation. They wouldn't use the word salvation, but, like, they, they use everything but the word salvation. You see, one of the problems with secularization is that we have placed our hope in human progress. We think somehow that we're going to solve strife between nations without divine interaction. Our humanism tells us, you know, with just the, just the right amount of political diplomacy, we can solve the Russia-Ukraine debacle that's happening, the crisis that's happening. That's not true. <laughs> it's, not it's not plausible. It's not possible. It's not going to happen. The problem with humanism, right, this belief that the human project is just on the up and up, that we can, we can solve our problems. It's that we think that we can solve human poverty without divine interaction with just enough political diplomacy and just the right policies and just the right foreign policy, we can figure this out without divine interaction. My question is this. It's a blunt one. What is it about the U.S. government? By the way, 
what is it about the U.S. government, no matter what party is in charge of the White House, that has ever made us think that politics is a place where nobody gets left behind? I mean, just ponder that for a second. What is it about the U.S. government that has ever made us think that we on our own, by our own human ingenuity, could solve world hunger and end political strife amongst nations. It is only the God that brings the tree of life down from the new Jerusalem, down from heaven, that can bring healing to the nations. Not our own human ingenuity. Politics is man-made. It is creature, neither good nor bad. But it is certainly not God who is creator. It cannot be our source of hope and salvation. And with all that said, right, hopefully I've offended everyone in the room at this point, including myself. I need to move on to the next one. I apologize. I have two pieces of advice. Like, how, how do we chart a course forward, right? We, you know, we can bash all sides, but if we don't chart a course forward, it doesn't matter, right? It's easy to say this side sucks for this and this side sucks for this. But how do, how do we chart a course forward? Begin, only begin to chart a course forward for a Christian posture towards politics in our very divisive age. And two pieces of advice. Remain a good citizen and retain a prophetic voice. Remain a good citizen. Four years ago, um, I remember hearing this phrase over and over and over again. That's not my president from the left. Four years later, I still hear that phrase. New president, different party saying it. Increasingly, our politics have fallen into a cult of personality, rallying around a cult of personality or attacking a cult of personality. And in so doing, it has squeezed any debate on policy that actually affects real people's lives in tangible ways out of the discussion. And so in light of that, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar, being a good citizen, living into what we're called to in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. In light of all that, let's be a good citizen. Here are my two suggestions. One is positive, one is negative. The positive one. I want you to pray for the leadership of the party that you oppose. And I want you to do so in a way that is not backhanded. Don't pray, oh God, just straighten them out. No, pray God's blessing on them. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill them with wisdom and discernment that is needed for our age. Secondly, positively, or negatively, stop the ad hominem fallacy. All right, that's, that's, that was for me, and probably Ben Waycaster, or maybe Avery got that one right. Anyone know what the ad hominem fallacy? Zoe, tell us. It's the attack of the man. Rather than the, than the position, yeah. right? Stop attacking people. Debate positions. Be a good citizen. It does not push the conversation forward in healthy ways when all we do is trash who's in the White House. It does nothing, and we as Christians should see ourselves as above that. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Remember that Jesus, two days later, I mean, maybe two or three days later, is going to die on a Roman cross, a cross propped up by Caesar. If he can say that, we can stop bashing 
the opposite party with ad hominem fallacy. Can we not? Can I get an amen? amen? Paul, who wrote those words in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. This is Paul. Where does Paul end up? Where does Paul die, probably? And what? Where does he die? Somebody, you got to know this. A Roman prison. If the original readers of Mark can be told by Jesus, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar, Nero, Nero Caesar, who just crucified Peter on an upside-down cross where St. Peter's Basilica now stands. If that can be said, then guys, we can stop bashing the, the, the person who fills the position and start actually debating real policy. Can we not? Be a good citizen, but don't stop there. Christians must retain a prophetic voice. We aren't, submission does not mean being a doormat, all right? We can speak out and we should. We can speak out and we should. In other words, hear this, recognize that God does not map onto either political party Right? Remember, like, why does Jesus frustrate the Herodians? Why does he frustrate the Pharisees? Why does he frustrate the Sadducees? Why does he uh, frustrate the Zealots? Because he didn't match any of their political parties and their political aspirations and their political agendas. Recognize that God does not map on to our political parties and therefore resist, hear this, resist assimilating into either one. As Catherine read for us, our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we speak from that perspective prophetically into the world. There's this great story um, at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Um, I've, I've told this story recently, but uh, let, let me tell it again. Um, Joshua is just taken over from Moses. He's quite nervous. They're about to go into the, um, the, the promised land, and they're about to have to fight all the Canaanites. All right? And what is Joshua in light of that? scared, very scared. And he has this vision of the commander of the Lord's armies. And he, and he sees this vision. It's an angel. And he sees this angel. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Whose side are you on? And the angel responds, neither. Which of your Joshua is not what you wanted to hear, right? But what is the angel saying? It doesn't matter. The question is not, whose side am I on? The question is, whose side are you on? Are you on your own side? Are you on your, do you have your own agenda? Or have you adopted God's agenda as your own agenda? I think we need to be asking ourselves, not whose side is God's on when it comes to political parties, but rather, are we on God's side when it comes to how we engage in our politics? Do you not think that would change the nation if we all accepted that reality? Yet again, I have one, two pieces of advice, one positive, one negative. It would be easy for me to tell you, find one random policy that you support and find one random policy that you don't support. So I'm going to make this slightly harder. I'm going to turn the notch up a little bit. Here's the positive thing I want you to do. I want you to find one stance this week from the opposing, your, the, the party that you oppose. 
Find one stance of the party that you oppose that you agree with and learn more about it. The negative one. I want you to find one stance from the party that, that you uh, claim as your own, but you don't agree with. And I want you to learn more about it. And here's the thing. If you can't do this, then it's time to ask yourself if God is shaping your political views or if your political affiliation is shaping your view of God. If you can't do this, it is time that you start asking yourself, is God shaping my political views? Or is my political affiliation shaping my view of God? We must retain a prophetic voice even inside our own political party. Right? Let's not equate God with politics, right? The kingdom of heaven does not map on to any political party. All right. As always, we're going to close by breaking out into groups of two to five. You always never listen to me and break out into groups of however many you want to. But here are the questions I want you to engage. Which one do you struggle with more? Remaining a good citizen or retaining a prophetic voice? And secondly, how are you going to respond to the two application points for the one you struggle with? All right? So, break up into groups, pray over one another, be civil in your discussion.